0: This is Ask a Biologist, a program about the living world, and I'm Dr. Biology. What do century-old mysteries, cold case files, and bones have in common? And while you're thinking about that, who are the people that help discover important clues and answers to unsolved cases when there is little left besides a skeleton or a few bones? If you haven't figured it out, we're going to be entering the world of forensic anthropology. and. The forensic anthropologist, well, they're people who can literally piece back together the bones of a person to help give them a name or tell how they died. Now, if we go to popular culture, there's the television show Bones. This is where a forensic anthropologist is paired with an FBI agent. And like the character on the television show, the forensic anthropologist has become a key role in solving crimes and helping to understand more about our history. My guest today is Tony Falsetti, a forensic anthropologist and professor of practice in the Math and Natural Sciences Division of the New College of Interdisciplinary Arts and Sciences at Arizona State University. He has served as the Deputy Director in the Forensic Sciences Department at the International Commission for Missing Persons, and is also a diplomat of the American Board of Forensic Anthropology and a fellow of the American Academy of Forensic Sciences. Tony has worked on several historical cases, including the identification of the missing children of Tsar Nicholas II. He's also worked on several major mass fatality incidents, including the Oklahoma City bombing and the World Trade Center. Today we have a chance to learn more about the world of forensic anthropology and how he and his colleagues helped to find answers to mysteries with little more than the bones left as clues. Tony Falsetti, thank you for joining me today and to talk a little bit about forensic anthropology. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. I want to talk about something before we jump into the world of anthropology. I want to separate out two things, anthropology and archaeology, because they both begin with an A, and there are times when people mix those up. And so can we talk about the basic difference between those two?
1: Yes, we can. So anthropology, I believe, is the overarching study of anything that has to do with humans, whether it's our evolutionary past, our relative non-human primates, our cultural attributes. And then the evidence of our past behaviors is the focus of archaeology. They are our brethren trained in anthropology, but whose focus is on the things we leave behind.
0: So the reason why I think there's some confusion is you're often working in the same place.
1: Yes, absolutely. And as a biological anthropologist, you know, and sort of a subspecialty of that is forensic anthropology, we use archaeological techniques all the time. Because in the world of forensic anthropology, what you're trying to do is capture a behavior that happened in the past. That skeleton by the very nature of it being a skeleton arrived before you did and other behaviors occurred and so we use techniques of archaeologists uh, to
0: capture that information. And today when we think of forensic anthropology, because I brought up these shows, we're thinking about them as solving crimes that's what their main role is. And in fact, that's not what forensic anthropology does all the time. There's a lot of other things that are involved. So can we talk a little bit about that? You know, for example, the historical cases that uh, you get involved in?
1: Yes. Forensic anthropologists do a lot of different things. Criminal behavior, past criminal behavior is just one of them. But we are able to use the techniques in forensic anthropology and forensic archaeology to look into the past, and so I've had the opportunity to work on um, some pretty interesting cases, including Tsar Nicholas, uh, you know, and the Romanov family, and Samuel Washington, George Washington's lesser-known brother.
0: And so we've talked about the idea of identifying people, and in particular, in your case, with the skeletal structure, bones, What can forensic anthropology do in order to identify a person? What can you actually ID?
1: What we can tell from the human skeleton. So I'll talk about two things kind of briefly. There's the identification. There's the positive identification of an unidentified person. And then there's what can we tell from the human skeleton. So we can determine someone's age, so their age at death. There's a number of different indicators on the skeleton. We would look at growth. We would look at uh, the joints knees shoulders the back uh, and our ribs and certainly the teeth those are good indicators of age up until a certain development so up until about 25 years of age and after that we look at other indicators like the pubic bone uh, part of our pelvis uh, we can determine the sex of an individual uh, after puberty so after you know about 14 15 years of age we will look at the pelvis you know the female Pelvis is different than the males. It's designed for the potential for childbirth. It is broader, and we can look at the skull. Uh, Males tend to be a little more robust or rugged, and so we look at above the eye orbits for brow ridges, and uh, there is a uh, a bump on the back of the head, uh, our nuchal crest. And that is more developed in males. And there's a lot of other sort of subtle characteristics throughout the skeleton that generally tell us male from female.
0: What about height?
1: Uh, Height is uh, fairly easy. It depends on what remains you have available. But generally what we would like is the femur or thigh bone. We want the largest piece of your stature. So, you know, we look for one of the long bones of the body, generally our our limbs. And then the most difficult thing I think it is for an anthropologist is ancestry. We are very good as anthropologists in um, determining where your skeleton might be from so where your ancestors may have come from. Uh, what is more difficult is to how that person might self-identify, and, and that's where it gets trickier. But, no, we're pretty good at ancestry. Uh, and then we can also determine about how long someone's been dead by looking at the condition of the body.
0: What can't it do?
1: It depends. (laughs) We're getting better at certain things. We're now, uh, by looking at teeth, able to determine where someone might have lived for a certain period of time by looking at sort of the chemistry of your teeth. So whether you had a rice-based or a wheat-based diet or what kind of chemicals were in the soils where you grew up. We can't tell eye color. We can't tell hair color. We can't tell how long your hair might have been uh, or hairstyle.
0: Now, you mentioned a bit about... uh What you could find out from a skeleton. And I think you mentioned it depends on how much of the skeleton you have. And I suspect it also depends on the condition of the skeleton. And when I say condition, it's not always in its normal pieces. Let's take the skull, for example. It often can be in multiple pieces.
1: Yeah, uh, the condition of the skeleton is really dependent on the environment uh, the skeleton is found in. It's dependent on things like weathering, to be honest, animal activity. Um, And then the kinds of injury that may have happened to that person can fragment that skeleton. And so you don't always have the entire thing to deal with.
0: Would someone in your role be, what would I say, putting together the ultimate jigsaw puzzle when you get some of these bones?
1: There have been some instances where that's exactly what we're doing is um, putting together puzzles, putting together... Uh, individuals based on, you know, we match fracture patterns, we match edges, much like a puzzle. We know what the picture's supposed to look like before we start.
0: <laughs> right. And. That, that does help, right? It's like the puzzle piece is that if you don't have the cover of the puzzle on the box, it makes it really tough to put it together. And so in this case, knowing your anatomy is really important.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, knowing uh, not only the number of bones, uh, but how they articulate, how they, you know, are formed in the body. And then knowing the rest of the anatomy is, is also important.
0: There's another career that's out there that's closely tied to forensic anthropology, and that is the forensic artist. How much science and how much art is in there? Because this is really an interesting challenge because I suspect they need to know their, again, their anatomy really well. But there are other pieces to it that when you try to put basically flesh back on a skeleton, how do you know how much and where?
1: Yeah, forensic art is a mix of art and science. Most good forensic artists will have taken anatomy or at least osteology. um, And some participate in research. And right now one of the areas that is being examined is what you alluded to, and that is how much tissue to put on any particular part of the face. And they're using technology such as CAT scans of individuals. And a CAT scan is just a digital picture of a person. And using the computer, you can remove the skin, you can remove the tissue. So it's sort of a layered approach. And what they're finding is they're able to get more accurate tissue depths. So when the anthropologist tells them that the skull that they are looking at is of a person of African ancestry. It's a female, and this person is five foot seven, and more importantly, they're 35 to 40 years of age. Then the forensic artist will go to those tissue depth records, and so they'll have a place to start, a solid anatomical place to start. And they're learning more and more what the underlying skeleton tells us about how we look. And then the art comes in in how they form that face. Uh, but they are given a lot of the underlying science, and again, some of them are participating in research themselves from the anthropologists. So it's a it's a good working marriage.
0: With all the cases you've done and all the identifications you had to do, I was really curious about the one with Samuel Washington. First of all, I have to admit, my history teacher would be upset because I didn't know Washington had a brother named Samuel, and my question is, why were you drawn into this case? I mean, what was the reason for it? I was drawn into this case by a man named Jim Stars,
1: And Jim Starrs is a, an attorney and a professor at uh, the George Washington University in Washington, D.C. And he is a professor in forensic science. And this instance, this case, if you will, was they had – essentially had lost track of George Washington's brother, Samuel. They believed he was buried on this particular piece of property uh, just outside of, well, Virginia. So it was just in in, uh, West Virginia across the Potomac uh, in Washington County. Uh, The Washingtons had had quite a bit of property in old Virginia before it became divided into two states. And um, uh, there was an issue with the property – You know, it was designated historic, and there were some financial issues. So the goal was to find the remains of the president's brother. And it was fascinating from the perspective of not only sort of uh, historic archaeology, but forensic anthropology. One of the things that we discovered uh, was that the historic cemetery – Uh, had clearly been moved over time, because when we were there, there was a cemetery. It had a wall, a stone wall around it, and inside the cemetery were headstones. This should have been a very simple exhumation. We exhumed the one that was believed to be Samuel Washington. There was literally no body there. There was no coffin hardware, no evidence uh, that that was actually a burial. And so, well, if he wasn't there, we moved to the next. And what we discovered was that there were no bodies under those headstones. So then we brought out the ground-penetrating radar. So from you know a technological point of view, we put everything we had into this, and we ultimately found all the skeletons. But they were 20 meters away, all of them. So either what we believe is the wall was put up well after those bodies had been buried and the headstones were probably lying, you know down slope from where they were uh, originally. So they built this historic cemetery and put all these uh, stones up, but there was no body under them. So it was intriguing. and you know, the fun thing about the historic cases is there's there's generally not any real criminal issue. It's more a matter of using forensic sciences to address historic questions. You know, we worked closely with the Armed Forces DNA Lab, and they were able to extract uh, DNA from, you know, just small finger bones, which they hadn't done before prior to this. So, you know, each one of them, you sort of contribute a little bit to either the methodology or the technology of forensic science.
0: Right. I can see it. Uh, It would be, um, what is it, solving a mystery. Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, solving a mystery or contributing to the historic record. And that was very similar to the Tsar Nicholas, because the Tsar and the majority of his family were recovered in 1995. But there were two people missing. And that was believed to be Anastasia and Alexei. And so for years, there's been this uh, sort of myth that the two youngest bodies were were blown up. They were were burned um, in their entirety. And, you know, this you know, gets built into the historic record. Disney makes movies about Anastasia. Uh, Anastasia escapes and lives in Charlottesville, Virginia, as Anna Anderson. So, you know, one of the satisfying things about that case was actually finding those two young bodies in 2007, only about 90 meters away from where the first nine were found, writing a historic fallacy in that instance.
0: Do you have a particular favorite way of identifying a body? Is there something that you go to almost immediately? It's not necessarily the answer, but it's something that you just find works really well.
1: Frontal sinuses, and I'll tell you why. The sinuses above our eye orbits, uh, you know, we have sinuses throughout our face, in our cheekbones and in our forehead, so that when we have a sinus infection, that's where the pain is. Frontal sinuses are the anthropologist's fingerprints, if you will. We believe them to be unique, although we obviously haven't sampled all of them in the world. And I go to these in many mass fatality situations because we have anti-mortem records of the people that we believe to be missing or killed, for an example, in a plane crash. And just sorting through the frontal sinuses is a very quick way to either exclude someone and then include just a handful of people where you can study it more carefully. Oh,
0: I I never knew that.
1: Yeah, they're really intriguing, and there's been a lot of work done. And because we obviously don't know all of the patterns, we've applied some different statistics to that so that we can be more accurate in our estimations.
0: Let's talk a little bit about um, bones in general. Uh, actually, bones and teeth. Okay. Okay? Uh, a lot of people think teeth are bones, and they're not. They're not. Uh... One of the biggest difference between them is the dentin. They they both have calcium. Right. And you mentioned that's one way that you can figure out sometimes where people have been living. Yeah.
1: Okay. So um, during dental development, prior to age of six, we choose the age of six because that's when you get your first permanent molar. So every organic compound that you've taken into your system— whether it's through your diet as being rice-based or wheat-based, or depending on where you live. If you're living in a um, an area that used to be highly volcanic, it's going to certainly have a different soil composition than the southeastern part of the United States. And this chemical isotopic signature gets bound up into the sealed part of the tooth.
0: Isotopic?
1: Isotopes are just sort of the chemical signatures Of anything. So, for example, the soil by your home might have a certain chemical signature, which means it has a certain amount of, we'll say iron or iron materials, so ores, things like that. And that gets embedded into your dentin, and the enamel seals that. And so, if you were to move, well, there's about six more years until the 12 year molar comes in. You know, if you moved across the world, we'd want to sample both of those teeth because they will likely have different signatures.
0: Oh. And then back to bones, we have a question that comes to Ask a Biologist a lot, and that is, how many bones are you born with versus how many bones you have today? So now I'm going to go the easy route here. I'm going to say how many bones the typical human body has is 206, and this is a number that most people will be able to remember from now on because... Each of your ears has three tiny bones in it. So if we take those three bones out, which typically would fall out if the skeleton is a typical skeleton, you have an even 200. So that's the easy one. So I'm going to leave the hard one for you. Okay. How many bones are you born with?
1: I think the most honest answer is what do you consider a bone? <laughs> because I've seen numbers of, you know, uh, Four hundred and fifty. It's like, well, okay, but it's it's really, you know, at birth, you know, we're basically a sort of a cartilage model of what our bones are going to grow into. And, and one way to tell is if you find a baby, ask permission, and see if it'll stand up, and it can't, because it doesn't have a hardened skeleton yet. So. Generally, at about six months, when they start to roll over, well, that means their upper body is developed. And so the humerus or the bones of the upper arm are calcifying and turning to bone. When they pull themselves up between nine and 12 months and they start to take those steps, that's an indicator of what's going on in the, the lower part of their body. Their skeleton is beginning to calcify or ossify and become bone.
0: Right. Becoming hard. rigid. Yes, yes. Right. And it makes sense that uh, – it, it, especially for childbirth, giving birth, uh, to have something that isn't quite so rigid going through the birth canal.
1: Right. That would that would complicate things greatly.
0: Yes, it would. Right. So there the answer to this big question that everyone wants to know is how many bones are you born with? Well, it could be a wide range. But again, as you said, it's the definition. Are we going to actually say calcified bone? Right. Do you have calcified bones when you're born?
1: Uh, parts of the skull are. Now, even right at birth, most infants, if you kind of have a look at them, they are kind of odd-looking. And there's a reason for that, isn't that? It's Because the bones of the skull can overlap one another to fit through the birth canal. And then usually within 24 to 48 hours, it begins to kind of fan out and, and look like a, a skull. And those bones are going through ossification post-birth as well.
0: All right. On the Ask a Biologist program, no one gets out of here without answering three questions. So I'm going to get started. Okay. The first one is, when did you first know that you wanted to be a scientist, or in your case, a forensic anthropologist?
1: It was my junior year of college. I took an interim course uh, in between two terms, and it was called Human Identification. And this was at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. And this course was taught by a man by the name of Bill Bass and Bill Bass was the state forensic anthropologist. Uh, Prior to that, I was a political science major, pre-law, and I took this class, and it was less about the skeleton and the anatomy, but more the, uh, the ways in which science could be used to answer questions, and he was very good at communicating this in a compressed period of time. From that course on, I became a human biologist, anthropologist. It really
0: was just that one course that really swayed me in this direction. Wow. It's amazing. But not all that different from some other stories I've heard, that um, there can be a really key moment in life that um, changes your trajectory. So let's move on to the next question. Okay. And this is one where I take it all away from you. You can't be a forensic anthropologist. And since you're at the university, I'm going to take away your teaching. What would you be or what would you do if you could do anything?
1: That's a good question. Uh, if I could do anything, I, I, mean, I couldn't be an anthropologist. I think I would like to rebuild historic cars.
0: Very good. Yeah,
1: I have done a little bit of that. I built an old Jeep one time, and it was
0: so much fun. (laughs) So you'd be an antique car restorer. Yes, I think so, yeah. Okay. And the last question, what advice would you have for a young CSI scientist or someone who wants to be the um, forensic anthropologist? What advice would you have for them?
1: My main piece of advice would be to Pick a science that that you're passionate about. You have to be passionate about what it is you do. I believe that no matter what it is you're doing, but in science in particular. And this is kind of an odd thing, but I've grown to respect the ability to speak another language. Not only does it expand your brain, but it expands the number of persons that you can interact with in the world. It is true that the language of science is primarily English. However speaking with colleagues about topics in their own language is a uh, is a wonderful thing to be able to do because it expands beyond the written, if you will. So I would tell someone to you know, put some energy into that, uh, make sure you're passionate about whatever science it is, uh,
0: and finally, don't go into it for the money. <laughs> Actually, it does bring me to an, another question. Uh, what is the career outlook for... Uh forensic anthropologists or, say, just forensic scientists?
1: Uh, Well, we'll take anthropologists first. Anthropologists are being hired more and more sort of at the doctoral level by the federal government. Uh, We've expanded our efforts into identifying unidentified soldiers from the Civil War on. Uh, New laboratories just opened up in Oklahoma. Uh, They are moving their anthropology lab to outside of Atlanta, or they call it EUSASIL now. And then at the sort of master's anthropological level, medical examiners and coroners around the country are hiring anthropologists to do not only death investigation, but the anthropological piece to that. Now for chemists and biologists, forensic scientists, uh, labs are hiring uh, not only uh, state and federal labs, but private labs as well. And so I think there's a tremendous upswing in the potential for people to get
0: hired on in in those kinds of labs. Well, with that, I'd like to thank you, Tony Falsetti, for visiting with me today. Thank you, Dr. Biology. You've been listening to Ask a Biologist, and my guest has been Tony Falsetti, forensic anthropologist and professor of practice in the Math and Natural Sciences Division of the New College of Interdisciplinary Arts and Sciences at Arizona State University. For those of you who might like to explore more about bones, we have a companion section on Ask a Biologist that teaches all about bones. The address is askabiologist.asu.edu forward slash busy dash bones. Because indeed, once you get there, you'll find out bones are very busy. The Ask a Biologist podcast is produced on the campus of Arizona State University and is recorded in the grassroots studio housed in the School of Life Sciences, which is an academic unit of the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. And remember, even though our program is not broadcast live, you can still send us your questions about biology using our companion website. The address is askabiologist.asu.edu. Or you can just Google the words, ask a biologist. I'm Dr. Biology.